Hello? Brandon, you're on SOB. <laughs> welcome to the Streak of Lean podcast. <laughs> welcome, welcome, everybody. I'm Brandon Chonko. And I'm Don Cooper. And together, we are Streak of Lean. So what's How you up, doing? Coop? I'm doing well, man. How about yourself? And I'm barreling down I-95. What's the What's the temperature over there on the Georgia coast? Um, it's 53 right now. I think it's supposed to be pretty cool tonight. And uh, I kept texting saying, "Give me five minutes," because man, there's one you, when you get on 95 from Savannah. You know, if you're getting on 95 at like 16. Um, yeah. The uh, I guess there's a lot of people that have moved out to that like it's you know. Obviously, there's people that have moved out to Richmond Hill, but I think out to Hinesville because it's like the third exit, and you're totally not expecting it. But man, that right lane, it, it just gridlocks, and it's it, it gets pretty dicey. I'm always kind of waiting for a wreck right there. Um, so I was waiting that, I opened up a little bit. Is that the exit with the uh, Harley Davidson shop? In no, the okay, no, that, that's it's past that. That's like Abercorn and. And then, yeah. Um, and then after that, you got a couple of Richmond Hill exits. And then it's it's right after that. I think it must be the Hinesville exit. It's wild, though, because, you know, nobody's aware of that. It's traveling. And so, like, if you're in the slow lane, um, like, it'll it'll literally stop. And, man, it gets real real squirrely right there. Are you pulling a trailer? Uh, a little cargo trailer. No big whoop. Yeah, but still, you don't want to slam your brakes on pulling something. Wouldn't make a shit if I did because I don't got brake lights. (laughs) (laughs) I'm notorious for that. It's hard to get, you know, the trailer for for the longest time did have brake lights. And then, you know, invariably something happens to the cable, you know, or whatever. So as long as I as long as I do my business before nightfall. Uh, you know, pretty good. I'm, I'm just hoping my reception will hold out, hold out pretty well for this. But I'm glad to be back on the podcast tip, man. I know it's been a rough uh, month for you. Um, tell us why. Uh, it's been some time. Um, well, uh, <laughs> I feel like that's a loaded question. But well, from well, <laughs> well, the, o- <laughs> the obvious, the obvious, the uh, so, so the hurricane. So, yeah. So, actually, I would just say that um, I'm blessed that the hurricane did not affect me uh, in any real negative way. Um, We lost power here in Sumter County for two days, um, and that was really pretty good for the rest of the area. The Hurricane Michael came, the center of it came through the southern part of the county, really Lee County, and then stretched out through um northeastward i guess all the way kind of through hawkinsville but um by the time it got here it was probably a category two uh certain and we had winds i would say 70 to 100 miles an hour um certainly as you as it came in through the state around bainbridge and seminole county it was a category three and the damage it did there was tremendous um i would say sumter was in such a good spot that it was a staging area for a lot of the um, utility trucks um, so that 
if you went to the Walmart parking lot for the next three or four weeks after that, and still actually today, um, it's just loaded with boom trucks. Um, they're staged at Walmart, but they're also staged at the technical college here. There's still boom trucks in Southwest Georgia right now. Oh, well, here's the deal, man. I, I've got some things. Um, so preliminary estimates for the damage of Hurricane Michael. And, and I should say, I've seen a couple of articles that's kind of stop on the Florida line. You know, they talk about some of the damage in Mariana and even Wewawichka, but they don't, you know, it, it talks about how oh, all the damage that happened out off of the coast, but then it doesn't actually talk about what happened as the hurricane moved through Southwest Georgia. Um, so a couple things here. One is that early estimates are that there were 130 miles of power line down in Southwest Georgia, which includes a thousand poles, 200 transformers that were destroyed, and there were about 400,000 people without power, 400,000 households without power. Golly. Um, in, in Southwest Georgia, in Baker County, especially those areas where um, we have a lot of timber and a lot of pecan trees that there was major, major damage to obviously those kind of operations. Um, I just talked to a guy who runs the Edward Jones outfit in Doherty County, and he said that the integrator that owns the chickens that his father-in-law, who his father-in-law grows for, that I think they had something like 160 chicken houses that they had contracted with, and 80 of those chicken houses are now gone. Um, it 80, is, 80 of the 160? Yeah, yeah, they lost, they lost half of, the op, of their birds. Um, so it, like the and 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 you, I guess you know. So the houses had birds in them when the storm yeah blows through. So obviously the birds. I mean, surely they die in the storm. They do. Right? Yeah, they do. They're dead. They're they're dead. Um, pretty fast, I would think too. With the rain, they probably drown. Um, pretty quickly. Um. Oh yeah, a big white bird like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and these are all broilers. So uh, who knows how old they were? Uh, it was also a uh, it was a really really good cotton crop, and it was a really really good pecan crop. So you had a lot of pecan trees that were loaded down with nuts um, that were just ripe to to tip over. Um, I have oh. some I have some 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 numbers here from the Department of Agriculture right now the. The state is having a special session uh, that was called by the governor to, to pass a, an aid package for farmers and for Southwest Georgia. And also, there's some talk that I, the main reason is to uh, reinstate a, a, a jet fuel tax for Delta, which is an, <laughs> something that got caught up in the, the gubernatorial campaign, especially the, uh, the, remember that. Yeah, the primary, which... Um, but here, here are the numbers. So, so all these uh, house or state agencies have had to submit uh, damage estimates to the state so they can figure out what they're going to do in terms of creating a budget to address this issue. Um, and you've got everybody from, you know, like Albany State, you've got the education, educa educational institutions, but also a lot of the correctional facilities had a, a lot of damage. And then even things like DNR properties and the state parks. Um, but this is what the uh, this is this is as of 1031 2018. This is from the Department of Ag. So uh, damage pecans, 100 million dollars in lost crop, 260 million dollars in lost trees, 200 million dollars lost income over the next decade for orchard reestablishment. Total 560 million dollars damage. 
Golly, uh, yeah, man. yeah, two hundred million dollars lost income over the next decade, and and there are some I, people who are older who anecdotally have are talking about not replanting because you're looking at another ten years if you have to replant yeah. an orchard, and they're just that's right. It's like yeah, that's like planning on going to Georgia, Texas. I mean, yeah. ten years away. Yeah, yeah. So they, even you know, if you're forty, you don't know what what's going to happen. You know, man, just devastating. And I think that's some of the stuff that's going to be harder to figure out um, going forward. And we're going to talk a little bit about some policy and legislation. But um, what you know, you can come up with something, an insurance program like the WIP program, which is what the USDA offers to compensate people to some degree for the loss in their cotton crop. But how do you, you know, fairly help someone who has lost kind of established infrastructure like a tree? Um, or, you know, I don't know if infrastructure is the right word, but, you know, they can lose yeah, this. Well, no, yeah. Yeah. Well, with a crop, you know, you could conceivably, you lose some equipment. Conceivably, you could plant again next year and, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, get kind of back on track. But if you lose an orchard or like portions of an orchard, I mean, it's got to be, I mean, financially just devastating. And then just from like a, wherewithal to keep keep going to watch those trees grow to be big enough where they're really producing well and then to see them then and i know pecan trees man when it gets wet and windy they just topple yeah i i i I don't think we're i i imagine in addition to the financial um just damage from the storm i think there's going to we won't know exactly how to assess, you know, some psychological issues. Cause I just can't imagine how people wake up and realize I've got a, two trees down in my house and my pecan orchard is gone. I lost my cotton crop and where do I start tomorrow? You know, like I, I I'm interested to have a conversation with somebody about that. I, I've talked to a farmer in Baker County and that's, that was his situation. He lost his cotton crop. He lost his, two of his chicken houses and he had no power and was told he wouldn't have power again for three or four weeks. And, you know, I just think, well, how do you go on from there? Like, what is your next step? What um, a gut, it's just a, a gut punch. Yeah. Yeah. And the worst part about it is that you sort of see it coming and, and it's like, but it's, it's gotta, it's, it's just surreal when everything is normal one day and then three days later you know you know something's going to happen and you hope hope against hope you know and then it's just so drastically different you know it's got to be just especially how emotionally invested farmers are in what they do no matter what they're doing farmers are just an emotionally invested lot of people and this storm was really fast i mean i oh yeah man we went camping in athens my father-in-law brought it up, and I was like, man, what are you talking about? And then, like, we got back home, and a couple of days later, you know. Well, my experience was the same thing. I, it was, like, a Sunday night, and I happened to turn on the news, and I saw uh, there's a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico that may hit the Florida Panhandle by Wednesday. And I was like, what? There's a what? You know? The, man, yeah, just barreling across the Gulf. Yeah. Um, and then, and, and even at that time, you know, it, it was not expected to be the, the intensity that it, that it reached when it did hit the shore. Um, but uh, so I was also going to just let you know, outside the pecans, I want to finish that up. The, um, yeah. 
the as far as cotton, there was five hundred and fifty million dollars in lost crop, and uh, I, I know that I saw a field in Wilcox County that was expecting about twelve hundred pounds an acre, and they were getting three hundred pounds at that time when they were picking. And a lot of cotton, you know, if, if it hit the ground, then it was gone. Um, and some of that just matters about, you know, if you had an open field, you might have more damage. There were some smaller fields that were surrounded by trees that did not have the same damage. And then variety types will also affect how that cotton clings. Um, with the vegetables, there was $480 million in damage. And they actually think that that was even more than would be normally, but there was a price spike after Hurricane Florence hit. And so they, there was a huge, a larger demand for vegetables. With poultry, there was $25 million in lost birds and houses that at the first, this estimate right now says 129 commercial chicken houses were destroyed at 36 farms. Peanuts, it was $10 million in lost crop. But the big issue here, and I think we'll talk about this in a later episode, is that most of the buying points are out of business. And so there's, we lost a lot of infrastructure with peanuts because of you have a lot of metal buildings um, and a lot of stuff has been damaged um, after that. So there's a shortage of storage space for your peanuts this year. Um, soybeans, $10 million in lost crop. With the green industry, $13 million. Mostly greenhouses were destroyed. Uh, damage to farm equipment, including sheds, silos, irrigation equipment, uh, is estimated at $50 million, but there's no real good way to estimate that. And then with timber, there's, they think there's about $763 million in down or damaged timber. And wow. Total commodity losses are $2.461 billion right now. Where okay? Where did the timber rank? What the the numbers? Um, dumb question, but where where did the timber rank as far as like the economic losses? As far what was the high? What was the most the most money in losses? And what, as far as the not the equipment and stuff like that, but just the commodities themselves, whether it's timber, cotton, pecans, whatever. Uh, it's timber. Timber. Yeah, and that's timber. I, you know, and, and I don't know if that also accounts for like uh, long range horizon of income too, um, the way that the pecan number did. But uh, at this point in time, according to their estimates, there's $250 million or $200 million more damage in timber than anything else. And uh, timber's kind of funny too, because it's not one of those uh, easily insured products through the USDA. So when when if you're a cotton producer, then there's a little bit more of an answer because you can have a policy that covers it. Timber doesn't work quite the same way, and there are some things out there, but it's just not as apparent as a as a cotton producer would have. Um, so I, I don't know exactly where the timber stuff's going to go. That's crazy. And that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, and they've had the USDA has joint agencies have gotten together and had one meeting in Tifton to talk about what producers can do next. There's a program called WHIP, W-H-I-P, which um, is for this kind of catastrophic weather damage, um, and it will provide for some compensation for loss, but it is a slow program right now uh it, there's a 2017 whip that occurred that um is for people affected by hurricane irma in the state of georgia can they can still apply for 
But I've heard also anecdotally that that money is very little that money has come out. And they are trying to kind of roll that money into a 2018 program to affect folks now. But it's very, very, very cloudy in terms of whether or not this, when or how this money gets paid and used and everything. And it's even more complicated because of some of the farm bill issues. It's crazy. You know, it didn't get the like national coverage that you would, you sort of expected that it wouldn't, you know? Yeah. Um, it's unfortunate. I mean, you know, who knows why, but. You know, even like, uh, it sounds stupid, but it's kind of it's kind of not. I mean, the weekend, okay, Georgia played at LSU the weekend following the hurricane, right? Like the hurricane happened that week. Yeah. And there's a lot of you know Georgia has players from Southwest Georgia. Georgia's head coach is from Southwest Georgia. Um, and like to to think that that wasn't like at least in their minds, some of those guys. Yeah, uh, and I didn't even hear it mentioned on on TV. It, maybe it's like a stupid um, observation on my part, but I kind of felt like, you know, I think obviously if you're from Bainbridge or wherever, you know, and it got, just got annihilated by a hurricane, I think you're probably like mentally grappling with that. You know what I mean? That's an interesting point. Uh, you know, TV, especially football, loves to throw out a sentimental story in the middle of a broadcast. And For that, sure. And it's, it is interesting that, that that was not pulled out because you're right. There is like Kirby Smarts from Bainbridge. Players are from Southwest Georgia. That this would be oh, something. I think, yeah. No, I think the hurricane itself did get national coverage as far as the Florida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the panhandle. And there was definitely some stories out on ESPN and stuff about there was one I saw uh, – Pretty pretty awesome, you know, story of a Florida State kid. Yeah, I need to talk about him. Yeah. Um, but I feel like it kind of feels, you know, it's kind of that, that kind of hurricane where it's like it was recognized what it did in one area and then not necessarily recognize what it did in maybe Georgia, the way that you kind of think. I mean, it, just given those, those numbers and how much of the country that area feeds. Yeah. You know, like if you're eating peanut butter, you're probably thanking Southwest Georgia for that. I think off the top of my head, there, there, there are two reasons for that. I think one is there's just a, a – one is there's no major metropolitan area in Southwest Georgia. So it's – you're not going to have um, local media that then sends it up to national media. You know, it's not an easy place to cover to get that story unless you're going to go send a reporter to be embedded for a while. Uh, because it's also, and it's also without having a city there, it's not as attractive a story because you don't have, uh, attractive a story in terms of, of marketability, you know, if it happens in Atlanta, it's an easier sell on a national standpoint. But I also think it's indicative of an issue, a shortcoming with just media stories or our attention span right now, which is. You know, we can we cover the veneer really well. The veneer is it hit Florida and look at that damage. And then that story stops and it's easily packaged and moved. And we don't go to the well, the second and third and fourth stages of how this the storm has affected other people. Um, you know, and I mean, you know, same way too. I think what I was trying to say the first time was also there's an, there's an insufficient coverage of rural America, and and there's nothing more rural than Southwest Georgia. No, headline, yeah, 
No, yeah, I mean, I agree totally. Trump, Trump, you know, Trump, uh, <laughs> Trump region gets what it deserves. Yeah, well, and I, I can't remember the timing, but I, I, I wonder when the Kavanaugh hearing stuff was. Maybe that was longer after that, but maybe, maybe it was. Yeah, it was right around there. But you know, the interesting thing, like, I know that, or I, you know, I sort of guess that, like, that does. You, you hate to think that it does, but I think that it probably does in some aspects of American culture. It probably does. Like, oh, there they are. You know, all, all the rednecks in South Georgia that don't believe in climate change, they got what they deserve. Yeah. You know, and it's like, it may be easy to say that or think that, or maybe you don't even realize you think that or whatever. But, you know, that area of Southwest Georgia is not. It's not just a bunch of white rednecks running around. Definitely not. You know what I mean? Definitely not. It's uh, you got you got black belt counties in there. Um, uh, I'm sure a fair amount of Hispanics in there. Yep. You got uh, white people, and most of whom are not rednecks. You know, and I did see that one New York Times article. Did you see that about the? how they spun it into a climate change thing? I did, actually. Uh, I, I went and met with Clay Oliver. We talked with Representative Austin Scott about trying to work on the farm bill. And he brought that up beforehand because he said that... Uh, Clay did or the other guy? Clay did. And I'll talk about yeah. Scott, but that, that, that the New York Times was going to come back and do a follow-up story because people were so outraged. Yeah. And that, oh, yeah. They, um, yeah, they, like, spun it on that climate change narrative which it's like you know i mean yeah i don't know it's such a heavy like thing like but the story so so what's the what happened exactly well the story was that you know the the reporter goes down there and he's like interview he's like kind of spending time with this family and in this town of people that just like literally lost most most everything and in the article the husband and wife kind of go back and forth about climate change. Like the, at least the way the article comes off is like the wife believes in it. The husband's like, you know, no, nah, hell no, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in none of that mess, you know? And um, so the, the article kind of comes off and the headline even was, you know, something I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like catastrophic agricultural damage in Southwest Georgia. Just don't ask them about climate change. Yeah, that's gross. Dude, that was the headline. And like, and then uh, my buddy Jed, who, um, you know, he's a writer and we follow on, on Twitter. He had prompted uh, somebody from the New York Times, a writer from the New York Times had reached out on Twitter about Georgia farmers. What, what do, what do you want us to know? You know, like, cause that was the whole New York Times like thing after they did the right. article their PR cover for that was, Oh, how can we help? And of course I respond to the tweet after I initially, I wasn't gonna. And for like four days and I texted Jed and I was like, look, that's just the New York times covering their ass because yeah. they printed this article, which he, he wasn't even aware of. And I was like, here's the article. And he was like, Oh, wow. That's, <laughs> you know, that's not, that's weird. You know? Yeah. And like, uh, so I, but, you know, I got to thinking about it, and it's right around the election and stuff, the, the governors and all this stuff. And I was thinking, you know, it's easy to sit and live and be a resident of South Georgia. And I do feel like a lot of my points are pretty valid when it comes to, like, how your your area gets kind of shit on a lot. Yeah. But I started thinking, you know, it's like 
well, you can keep fighting with people and, and keep arguing, or you could try to be a peacemaker. And so I actually responded to the tweet, and I just said, hey, I'm happy to help. What do you want to know? And, of course, they never responded. So I have a real problem with the New York Times headlines uh, that – that uh, and I have actually have a problem with all the media today. I don't know if we want to go down that that that. <laughs> but no, I, I think New York Times. I think that they have bad headlines that are certainly they are certainly marketing themselves to a certain audience and reader, and it's it's pretty apparent. Uh, I it does not. I'm not trying to impugn the quality of their journalism when it gets down to the important stories. But I mean, if you look at their headlines and then their sub headlines, um, you know, it's almost it, it is there to trigger a certain kind of reader and then to I was going to say mansplain how you should receive this as a liberal voter. <laughs> what is mansplaining? I've heard this. Uh, uh, man, I mean, I don't, we don't need to get it. Can we say that's mansplaining so for another episode? No, that's so good. I'm going to use that. Mansplain. Uh, but I think, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a real problem. I think that they came down and, you know, they, they, they solved the story from a filter that made sense for their readership without actually kind of getting into the substance of what, was really actually happening. And I think that's just an epidemic right now where we, you know, we kind of have all this surface level interaction with other people and we don't really kind of get to the, the pith of, of, of who they are. And like, how can on. we help? Yeah, that's that, right. That's right. That's right. Well, and, I mean, and, and like the point, you know, it's like, okay, say, say, say those hurricanes are caused by climate change. Just say, say, are, you know, just say, okay, they are. Um, A, like, nobody's going to sit there and say, okay, we don't need to come up with a plan. And then B, you can't really do much about it right now. Yeah. Like if that's, what's going to happen, if that, you know, and it's like, I don't think it's as closed off to talking about stuff like that in places like rural America as it's portrayed. Like, I just don't think that people really are that, adamantly opposed to the idea of global warming or whatever i I think that it's just that they kind of get pawned off is this like narrative of people that want to start it's like the guy in new york city that does probably nothing outside of recycle his water bottles as far as like and maybe drive around a battery powered car you know as far as his doing his part of preventing global warming yeah you know, but then that, that that kind of person comes off really condescending when the conversation comes up. So then other people just kind of yeah pull back, and it's like, man, you know, I, mean? I don't know if that even makes sense. It, it makes sense. I, I think there's a lot of condescension, maybe both ways, but I think there's a lot of Probably. condescension. And I, I think I think one of the problems is is the how we communicate here. So. There's a tendency among elites, we'll say, <laughs> um, and I'm really su- suspicious of any kind of words at this point in time, but there's a tendency toward intellectual abstraction. And so, you know, people are drawn to these big ideas and terms, you know, it, it, climate change is something that I think people feel that when you say that, you feel like I understand what's going on and I have a kind of intellectual grasp uh, that, it, that, that is a sense of superiority of, of through understanding. And I, and, and, I think if you change the conversation to, do you think that we should 
you know, reduce our fossil fuel consumption and we should not build houses on the beaches, then, you know, that's another conversation, right? We don't allow ourselves to get into actually actionable steps on how to move forward to address climate fragility. Instead, we determine that there's a litmus test about do you or do you not believe in climate change? You know, do you or do you not believe in certain social issues? And if you say yes or no, then we can pigeonhole you immediately and create a yes, you know, us versus them, as opposed to, to allowing us to get down into actual details of what are the steps to actually that we can all agree on that improve all of our, our lives. That's man, that is beautiful. Dude, if that's mansplaining something, I, I want I want that. We need more of that. <laughs> well, I heard this thing about, um, I, I, and it was I was some commentator, and it was about when the the North Carolina bathroom issues. And you know, if I think that I think people, what we've talked about before too, is that we find folks in rural America are actually live much more complicated lives that stretch across. Um, social, racial, uh, and sometimes even wealth uh, uh, divides, um, but certainly social divides, racial, social divides, um, and, 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 uh, and sexual divides as well. And, uh, you know, it's a lot more complicated, the social situation in rural America than, than it probably it is in most urban situations, because urban, most urban situations I've seen are a lot are, are very segregated and you know atlanta is a very segregated city like every other city oh, i've ever man. been in oh, they're gonna riot now well it is i mean it is and it's you know it's, it's a little bit condescending to or, or frustrating to go to atlanta and go to Inman park and see signs out in front of the houses that say you know we accept everyone here um no matter you know what your skin color is but also knowing that you're in a monolithic neighborhood of white people upper middle class to flat out rich undoubtedly undoubtedly that yeah well sure i mean you know i could get on up on a soapbox but i always say like you know why why is mcnair high school in east atlanta all black where's all the neighborhood white kids go they don't go to mcnair you know yeah it's like you know it's yeah yeah I, I agree and and it, it does come off as like when 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 there's a certain personality type when they talk about South Georgia that you know you can kind of feel that it's like this is not like rural America is better than urban America as much as it it's all more complicated than we allow ourselves to understand. Um, and just go go to Walmart. <laughs> you, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like you're not able to wash your hands of the race problem just because you're young, affluent, white, and you live in an urban area. Right. Right. You can't right. wash your hands of it any more than I can. That's right. That's right. And I and I that's right. And I think um, and uh, there's a the Walmart thing's interesting too because those folks are not going to Walmart when they should be, you know, it's, and I, what I think the, some of the issues are is that there's a kind of better living through abstraction. So like I said before, like, Oh, we want, this is what, this is what we believe in, but we don't actually live it out. Um, and so, you know, all 
those shopping decisions, all, all the things I saw happen in Atlanta that bothered me was an extreme gentrification uh, that was kind of intolerable, but uh, seemed like it was running amok, you know, so that the people were not, it, it's a really interesting city that has a, a lot of different people and it's exciting because it is a really, it is a cool, diverse city but it's also kind of very, very self-segregated so that, you know, you're, 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 you need to, even if your work decisions aren't that, but your social and your shopping decisions um, are very much segregated. And if they're not segregated solely by race, they're certainly segregated by class. Yeah, and, without a doubt. Right, right. And, and I, I think that really whenever we're talking about things, we talk about class, but we don't, um, we, we're not able to talk about class well in America because, we're told that everyone can be anything they want to be. You know, we're all, uh, we're all little John D. Rockefellers and like nothing stops us when essentially like, no, you are born in a class that limits your, can limit your, your horizon. For sure. And that, and that exists in small towns just as much. Yes, you that's know, true. If you go, if you go to Reedsville in Tattnall County, there's a certain class that sends their kids to Pinewood Christian Academy and they would have it no other way, you know, right and to them. Pinewood Christian Academy is it, it is their Marist. It's their St. Pius, you know, it's, you're nothing if you don't go to school there. And, you know, it's like you definitely, the, the gap between the haves and <laughs> they realize that it's it in towns like that, it's definitely there's an awful lot of intermixing of various types of people based on economic level. That's right. So who who said that? Where was the person from that said that comment about Atlanta? Okay, Atlanta. so okay, that's good. I, I missed that in the first story, or first time around. Uh, yeah, I mean that, they're yeah. they're awesome people, but they're not the type of people that have really spent a lot of time in towns like yeah, Reedsville, and uh, yeah, you know, and it's like. Uh, to think it really struck me, you know, because it, it's like when well, you live in Atlanta, you don't really venture out, and that's what you kind of probably think. If you're joking around about it, then you probably there's probably some seriousness behind it, and you probably don't realize that if you were to go to a town like Reedsville, there's an awful lot of intermixing of the quote common people. Brandon, I, I, I mean, shit, we just say whatever. This is why. Who cares? But because I, um, I, I do want to be sensitive, I, you know, I think it's, it's we're in a climate right now. It's really easy to overstep um, bounds or, or for yeah. people to 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 be offended. But like, I mean, straight up, I cannot number all the people I know who older white people who have said or seem to express racist sentiments but who also are raising grandchildren that are, are mixed race. And they, and you know, and it's that thing where it's like, it's the, all I put my only point is it's more complicated that these are really actually wonderful people. Their racial views are de- detestable and destructive, but then when it comes down to actually how they're living their lives, you know, that, that they are just factors, the facts of life have overcome, you know, what is a, a disgusting prejudice because now they have grandbabies that, um, that, you know, kind of 
yeah, are mixed. Are mixed, yeah, and and and, and they love those children. And they treat them like they're they're their grandchildren, like, and, like any that, other grandchildren. Yeah, yeah, and the things, and it's it's really interesting to see that happen because I see it in North Georgia, I see it in South Georgia. Oh yeah, I mean, if you were to come to my street, my my kids who are not not mixed race, they're just boring old Caucasian kids, um, but they're in the minority of kids that are out playing football on my street. Most of the kids that they play with on my street are mixed race. And I mean, it, it's obvious enough to where you, that you you're like, wow, there's a, there's a way. And it was like that in Reedsville too. There was a, a fair amount of mixed race kids, you know, and I, I don't know enough about it to know, you know, what the, is it, you know, and, and, and I'm not talking just mixed race like black and white. You know, there's yeah. also Hispanic. Yeah. The one thing that always struck me about Reedsville was that there was people that appeared to be Mexican or Hispanic that as soon as they open their mouth, they have a Southern accent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're yeah. like, man. And you really like, you know, you talk about like, you know, it's like, wow. And I grew up going to Reedsville, you know, and even some of the stuff, I think when you grow up in Atlanta, you're just, it's like you're conditioned to think that Atlanta is somehow better on all levels than basically every other place in the state, you know? And when you get out and you start really sinking your teeth in, you start to see the chinks in the armor, so to speak. Because it was. When I was a kid growing up in Stone Mountain, Stone Mountain was a really charged, racial environment i'm talking Hmm. violent fights between black and white kids it was very segregated it was very charged and it was very it was like you know half and half you know it wasn't like uh it was it was but it was charged man it was like hypercharged like you wouldn't go to school some days you know because it was just that charged up and you go down to like reedsville or st mary's or you know, and it, I guess like anywhere else, you'll he, you know, you, you always hear, you know, there's always ignorant people, you know, but yeah. I don't, it doesn't, it, I, it just never comes across to me as being charged in the least. I mean, I'm saying that as a white guy, but yeah, you never get that impression that it's very charged up. Yeah. And I, and I say, and to be fair, I mean, just, just, we we are four mixed race children too. We have <laughs> just so we know oh, there, there's well, over there. Undoubtedly, man. Yeah. I mean, let love rule. Yeah, yeah. You know, I went to prom with a black girl, man. She was Keisha, Keisha Maiko. Golly, she was hot. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, man. I mean, I'm I am not like uh, I'll be real with people, but I'm not I'm not the kind of guy that like really goes too much into how somebody looks, regardless of what they look like. I don't. I don't put much stock into how people appear. You know, if anything, I, I'm probably more skeptical of your average white person than I am of probably most other people. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm definitely more skeptical of your average rich white person than anybody else, um, without a doubt. Uh, because I, I think also I have a uh, I'm, I'm worried about hypocrisy more than anything else. And I yeah. think, you know, your rich person is likely more likely to be a hypocrite than than your average other person. Yeah. Well, yeah. And if you really wanted to get up on a soapbox about it, the you can't have real racism without power. Right. Yeah. Your average right. 
middle-class white person doesn't really have enough daily power to be a true racist in the way, in the sense that they could really do a whole lot individually. You know, it takes an institution to be racist. It takes, like, that sort of power. Yeah. It takes, it takes like, a CEO. I mean, man, you know, I sell to a lot of restaurants, and, you know, it, there's a lot of some people I've known throughout my career that are very vocal about being very tolerant and how they hate this or that about certain demographics in our society. You know, um, they're, they're, they preach the virtue of tolerance, but every time I was in their kitchen, it was a white male in charge. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, those are the positions where you could enact some sort of change. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting you talk about that because there's something about the structure there. I mean, if you have institutional racism that keeps people out of educational opportunities, then you have to find professional opportunities that allow them to overcome that. And I think a kitchen is a place where that can happen, where where actually technical skills and and raw ability can can help someone move uh, Mm -hmm. up or down. Right. Um, I, I see that, you know, you talk about I see with, with my clients also, you know, a, a kind of institutional racism, which is really just a, a prejudice against people without means. And so, you know, when I write a grant for somebody, um, these grants are open to both, you know, rich people and poor people, uh, rich nonprofits, poor nonprofits, black nonprofits, white nonprofits, you know, it's across the board. But the grants are so difficult that they need that that people who want to apply have to hire someone to help. And I have a special skill set, been able to write the grants, but knowing how the, the grant system works, how the reviewers look at grants, and also uh, having an agricultural knowledge base where I can kind of put together the puzzle pieces and actually make a really compelling project. And I think one thing to do is make good projects. Well, in order to afford me, you know, you got to have some means. And so already it's like I'm the people who have money who don't necessarily need the grants are already privileged or, or, or in a position, better position to get more grants. And so the, the money funnels to the people who already have more money. For sure. That's right. Yeah, man. I mean, it's, I guess that, that is like how, you know, just like maybe there's not as much upward mobility as we'd like to think. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think, uh, I mean, it's like right. the guy, the guy that the you know the governor, the Kemp, you know, yeah. Which I, I don't want to get real political, yeah. but you know his whole narrative was, I started a, a business building homes by showing up with a toolbox in my pickup truck and getting after it, and it, <laughs> like, dude, yeah, from a guy that does construction, yeah, yeah, that is complete bullshit. I mean, complete bullshit. You don't just start getting after it and then create an empire. It takes it takes money to make money, buddy. And I mean, that's just the way it is, you know. Oh, uh, totally. I mean, I I actually so I I wanted can get back to the outline here uh, about yeah. Um, says, Maybe we should. Yeah. I mean, long story short, look here at Streak Lane, we we love everybody. Okay. Yeah. We don't. I mean, we are pro human beings, and that's it. You know. But we will talk about stuff like this, and you know. Hopefully, you know, hopefully it makes sense when we do get off on those tangents. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know, but you certainly did. I thought your points were just immaculate. 
Well, thank you, Brandon. That's really kind. Yeah, it was really good. Uh, and I, actually, so this this episode was always going to be a little bit about politics. Um, I, I want to stay away from the, the governor's race right now because it's still in the recount phase. Oh, it's actually not a recount phase. It's just we're still in the phase of counting some of the last votes. And so it's a funny. it's a so really weird. It's well, and I don't I think maybe we should wait to have a conversation. Yeah, we should. This. We should. It's really charged, and I've had a lot of folks or people from outside of the state, I've had several folks who, like, contacted me about it with perceptions of what's happening here totally different from my experience right now. But I, I, I want to be careful about all that um, because that, that has become a race that's become – there's a lot of finger-pointing and extreme accusations happening there on both sides. And I, and I think that uh, – for this, and you know, we can we can we can come back to that. I mean, it'd be nice to have that conversation, but maybe we also have not two white guys also talk about it with all this the talk about voter suppression. Yeah, which um, is a serious fucking thing. It you is know, it really serious, is yeah. like yeah, it's 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 serious shit. It's like oh, where do the votes go? Oh, blah blah blah. You know, is the middle of the bed kind of guy? Look, that's serious shit. You're fucking with your most basic right. And to think that, like, people in power don't fuck with things like that, you're naive as shit to think that. Yeah, yeah, and I would only say my uh, – I don't want to get into it, but that – that oh, my gosh. The voter suppression, I think that there's been a lot of, of accusations of outright voter suppression due to Kemp's position. I think that – um, or not out, outright through kind of uh, devilish machinations, you know, of what's happening from the Secretary of State's office down. And I don't think there's been suppression like that at all. I think the suppression has been people in power, legislature, you know, uh, passing laws that maybe makes red voter registration more difficult. More difficult, sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think it's like, is, you know, obviously malicious like that but i mean i you know if somebody were to say well they they put a roadblock up on this day in front of the voting precinct like yeah i think shit like that probably goes on yeah and when what yeah and i think i think we could we we almost need to make some notes to have that conversation because there's so much that happens georgia's a little more complicated the kemp by staying as a secretary of state as during all this has opened himself well he's opened himself up to every accusation possible and even and, and what it allows is for the same thing with this is actually absolutely happened. Same thing with the story about the hurricane is that we get stories from places like Vox and New York Times and Washington Post that are real broad brushed stories. Whereas I think the AJC has done a very good job of actually going point by point to, to talk about any accusations of malfeasance or exactly what power the secretary of state's office has. But Kemp, by staying in that position, it was really incredibly stupid from a political and optics standpoint. You know, he should never, ever have stayed there because it basically allowed every accusation to stick in some way in people's minds. At least it, it opens it up to where, you know, as a guy that like, I'm just like, I'm always real skeptical of any politician, people of power, just in general, I've had bad experiences, you know, with um, just certain like, you know, I had I, I've had some bad experiences with police when I was young, you know, and like bad experiences, you know, police brutality type stuff. And um, not that I wasn't doing something in the wrong, 
you know, but I was a young guy and yeah, I was in the wrong, but did it warrant taking me in an alley and beating the shit out of me? No. You know, and as an adult, I can sit back and look at that and say, you know, like when I hear about it, I, a lot of times I, I can see how some of that stuff happens, you know, because it, it, you know, but I am like naturally, but I'm with you on the, um, he, he kind of kept his position and it opened it up. And then, you know, there's also something to be said, I think for the other side too, where it's like, you know, if you lost, you lost. Yeah. Um, and you can't just be dragging votes out and like not having birthdays and stuff on them. And like, yeah, like what's fair is fair. I think it's a, it's definitely a delicate story and it's like probably way more to it than we even know. You know what I mean? And like, you're, you're really going to have to get some hindsight and look at that. Yeah. And I, and I, what I've seen too, with talking to people about it is, you know, it's, it's, if you fall, if you believe one thing or the other, you automatically, any, any story you see on Twitter on confirms your bias. Um, and, right. That's right. And I, and I think you have to look at things systematically. And then also, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think they also cannot deny that, you know, in the face of voter suppression accusations that, the turnout was unbelievable. You know, there was, there was an incredibly high turnout. I saw something like there was 230% more early voting than there was the last election. I mean, this is that, that this was people came out in droves for this. Um, oh yeah, which is, for sure. Which is fantastic. I mean, fantastic. I mean, I, I waited an hour to vote and, and I, and every story I've, I've heard is that whoever waited is just because there were, there were so many people there to vote. And, and I think that this has been a, that if anything, well, if nothing else, like it's great that everybody voted, and we can talk about, you know, how people are spinning it after that. Um, That's right. Um, but I, I'm I, with you. I want to talk a little bit about so to get to the things. I want to talk a little bit about farm bill, and then talk about actually about this vote because we'll talk about the governorship later, and we need to talk a little bit about you know another episode about what Abram said about farming and Kemp's maybe his strategy to get to South Georgia and rural Georgia and how how the votes kind of came out. But Gary Black the current commissioner of agriculture who i think he's this is his third term if i'm not mistaken he is he has succeeded tanya urban who was in that office for something like 50 years he was the last democrat in the south and he was at one point in time the longest serving i think politician in the country yeah um gary black has done an excellent job my, a reason I point that out is that you can sit if you're a commissioner of agriculture in Georgia. Theoretically, you could sit there as long as you want, uh, as long as you don't have any kind of uh, scandal or anything that follows you around. And uh, Gary Black had an uphill job coming in because I think that department was not where it should be in terms of modernizing and using technology. And uh, he got that turned around. And I think he's been a, a pretty attentive and good commissioner of agriculture. Um, you know, just. And parenthetically, I would say that, uh, that that job is a lot of uh, PR because I'm, there's only so much you can do. You are handed a budget by the legislature and you, know, you have certain authorities that are defined. So I, I get kind of frustrated when you see people who run for that, that seat and they say, we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to invest in that and do this. And it's like, well, you really can't. You're only so many things you can do. It, you know, you can't create new jobs or new positions in the Department of Agriculture unless the legislature creates a budget that gives you money to, to fund those people. So it's not it doesn't have the kind of power that we like to think that it has. Um, that being said, Gary Black won his race 53 percent 
53.2% to 46.8%. He got 2,029,273 votes, and his competitor, Fred Swan, the Democrat, got 1,789,018 votes. Uh, wow. It was that close? 50,000 votes, roughly. That is insane. That is, yes, it was that close. That is, like, he, he won, I think, in all the statewide races, I think he won by the largest margin. But his competitor, Fred Swan, nobody even, I didn't know his name. All I do is breathe, live and breathe agriculture in the state of Georgia. I didn't know his name until the week before because I made myself go and Google and figure out who this guy was. He has no agricultural background. I know from behind the scenes that the Department, I mean, the Democratic Party of Georgia, was beating the bushes looking for somebody to run. And basically it was a sacrificial lamb um, just to have somebody on the ballot. And most everybody said, uh-uh, I don't want to do it. And it actually got me kind of frustrated because I, with the, the state, with state party um, operations, because I just feel like, you know, Democrat party of Georgia, get your, get your act together. You know, like if you want to have, um, I, I mean, I, you need to work four to eight years before you have to start putting roots down before this. Don't be coming around looking for someone in the last minute. Um, and I think also Man, for that, that position, dude, yeah. Yeah, that would have been, that could have been catastrophic right there. Well, and I, and I, I don't want to, this is for another podcast, but for, uh, for them, you know, the democratic party, it's, they have a lot of work to do in the state. And I think throughout the states, I think they've done a very good job on a national level of finding kind of, uh, high profile candidates and running them. And then of course, bringing a lot of money nationally into those races. And of course they did that in Georgia. I think, you know, last time we had some some major races for the governorship and for the Senate, you know, they kind of their best idea is, well, we'll rehash, you know, a kind of semi-celebrity. We'll get Jimmy Carter's grandson or we'll get Sam Nunn's daughter. And they really lucked out to have Stacey Abrams because she is self-made. You know, she is as leader, uh, minority leader. Like she she is smart and she knows how to sell herself. And she has had a strategy for a long time. And because she's also in Atlanta, she can pull all that all those votes um, for sure. But, but, you know, they just ran this guy at the last minute and for him to get almost 1.8 million, 8 million votes. That is, that is insane. Uh, it also shows you how many people turned out in the Atlanta Metro area to vote for the Democrats. I mean, if he, <laughs> what would he have done? Like, uh, we need to have more urban farms. No, he did say that. You know, he wants to do local <laughs> local foods and farmers markets. Oh, I'm he did. Sure. He did. I'm sure. You give all the good talking points, but I mean, yeah, but you, there's a lot more to it than that. You know what I mean? Oh, I, I'm I'm with you. I was I was offended by this, and I'm sure the guy's nice. I was just offended by the way that it was all put together. I'm just like, come on, you know, if y'all want to have a good race, have a good race. Now, interesting, yeah. interestingly enough, man, what it does show you, I've been kind of on this for a little while. Is that you know if you wanted you could run, you could win that seat with just a, a real intense uh, marketing strategy in the metro suburbs really you know you need to travel to the state but if you just ran a lot of TV ads in Metro Atlanta you could probably win that sucker um, and you know come, isn't that something? yeah right and 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 I mean mo- I would I would promise you that. I mean, I would think 90% of the people who voted for him have no idea exactly what the Commission of Agriculture does. I think it was just a, a, a party vote. Um, oh, well, f- for sure. I mean, it's a guy that, like, makes his living from, like, the local, quote, local food movement. Uh, oh, no, no, no the guy, he's, a, he's a computer programmer in Macon. 
See, I, I thought Black had done a, a really good job, and I actually voted for him again. And I, in my opinion, that's one of those offices that I'm not really concerned with party lines at all. I'm concerned with, like, do you have experience in agriculture? Yeah. And can you – because it's our state's biggest industry. And, you know, you really got to know wh- what you're dealing with and what, what you're doing. I had, I certainly didn't ever feel any adverse effects from black being in the office and it's probably better now for local food than it, uh, than it has been, you know? Oh, I think it's, I think it's definitely better. I, you know, he, the, the problem you have with, with, I think any politician in that office is that the, the constituency, especially in terms of money is not coming from the local food sector. It's coming from commodities. And so, you know, they're not, beholden from a campaign standpoint to local food you know like their money is coming to run that campaign it's 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 coming from the rest of our culture and also like that's where all the money is in georgia so you know if you want to preserve your position and on a macro level do what's best for georgia you look out for chicken and cotton and peanuts you know you don't Mm -hmm. um and then you spend whatever time you can looking out for local food systems and farmers markets but it's you know just by virtue oh, yeah. of job, it's, it's a, a smaller percentage of your time. The local food stuff is a really long game type of endeavor. You know, it's like it, it, it can get better, in, but it's going to get better incrementally. Um, it's like what you said about the infrastructure being gone with peanuts, you know, or, or a lot of it. Like with local food, a lot of it is just not there to begin with. And you're not going to create it overnight. And you can focus, you know, but it, but it has, it's grown. I mean, I'm doing a, um, Georgia organics is doing a 200 farms organic, you know, to help 200 farms in the state get certified organic. And I'm taking part in that. And they, I'm sure that, you know, the, it, the commissioner of agriculture didn't at the very least, he's not thwarting stuff like that. Right. So, right. Now, is he, like, out there, like, beating the streets, like, we need more organic farms? Probably not, but the reality is, is that you're trying to feed a massive population, and, and there's only a certain segment of that population that uh, really wants access to certain types of food. So, in, in some ways, with local food, you're, like, doing behind-the-scenes work for, like, the greater good without the person, even if the person doesn't realize that it's good for them or not you're trying to do that kind of work, but he's got to be beating the streets for the, you know, the, the bell cow type industry. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's something about doing the behind the scenes work. I've, I've really responded to, um, it, it'll be interesting to see organic with, with organic trends. I mean, I, I thank you for, for mentioning Georgia organics. I'm really glad you're, you're getting certified. I, you know, I think it's, I think it's a good thing. And Georgia organics right now is out there to help support people who want to be certified organic, they'll help cost share and they'll also like help walk you through the, the paper process. Um, but have you seen these ads for, uh, how, there's a, there's a national beer brand that's that's made with organic grains. I think it's Michelob. I'm not sure. Um, oh really? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I th- actually, I think they're made in Georgia. Uh, Michael wall from Georgia organics told me that, uh, because I think they're using, they're shipping in organic rice to, um, make the, the light beer, but we'll, you know, organic has always been also another class divide. And we'll see if people really care about having organic beer, you know, on a mass market. 
if that that's right. if that changes things at all. It's interesting to see that it's being advertised. So I, I'm curious. We'll have to watch that. Yeah, I'm going to start marketing my phone once I get the um, organic stuff. You know, you know, I mean, I'm I'm joking, but I'm going to I'm kind of marketing it now. You know, it's like come, you know, just come eat like decent food. And it it just happens to be as natural as I can possibly produce it, but it's like organic without the pretension. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I mean, you got to admit, or I mean, I'll say, you know, organic food and or, the local food movement is just it's wrought with all kinds of weird pretension, of uh, and there's all kinds of. Um, you'll get people you go to a farmer's market in Atlanta. You will definitely have people that live in like, say Inman park coming up to you, um, telling you a, how you should be doing it or B what's a better way to do it or applauding you. He's doing it quote the right way. Yeah. That always got under my skin the right way, you know, as of, you know, but I mean, that's just, that's just, uh, that's just sort of, you know, it's like any, any movement, I guess you got to be careful how you market it to begin with, because once you get it, once you get whatever message you're pushing out there, it's really hard to kind of change that. That That's exactly right. That's an interesting point. Um, with that's, that's a really interesting point. It's, it's hard to, to, to steer the ship in a different way once you've got the momentum behind your 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 marketing narrative um yeah it's it's, it's wild you know hey i'm gonna yeah. walk into the gas station and hand this girl a 20 dollar bill for some gas um so i'm gonna go on radio silent for a second can you still hear me oh yeah yeah all right you if you go radio silent, what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna talk for a minute here about farm bill stuff while you're in there okay okay cool uh, i also had a guy walk up to me and tell me he had just got bitten by the in the eye by something and he showed me his eye and i could not tell that anything had bit <laughs> him in the eye a bug he i couldn't understand him he said he needed help and someone had just bit something had just bit him in the eye and <laughs> yeah <laughs> just now? oh no right before we got on the phone he had a cigarette behind his ear and he was he was pretty pitiful uh, but he he was, and I, I, that really is what turned me off. I was like, man, I, not only do I not have any money, but like, I don't see any damage to your eye. <laughs> um, here, come over here, squat down in front of me. Let me take a look. <laughs> I'm no eye doctor. Open up. Let me see. All right, all right I'm going to run through some Farm Bill stuff real quick here because we, uh, we have about 15, 20 minutes left. Okay. Okay, cool. All right, so Farm Bill, right now, uh, this is our legislative update. With the Farm Bill, we are in conference committee. Uh, we were there was the farm bill is important because all the grants that I work on, almost all the grants I work on are all funded by the farm bill and have to be reauthorized. And the five year farm bill came up this year, was done, and we need a new one for these programs to be back. Um, the House and Senate each passed their own bills. The House passed a bill that was very, very favorable to just commodities and pretty rough on SNAP recipients. And that's probably an understatement. The Senate bill was really interesting and, and is kind of in line with past farm bills. And it does definitely support some local foods and then some urban agriculture uh, initiatives, which are probably need to be better understood by most everybody. Anyway, the Senate bill is very good. And I actually worked with NSAC and Clay Oliver, who had been a value producer, grant client of mine, to help write a letter in support of this program called LAMP, which is uh, 
Ah, heck, I don't know. It's National Sustainable Ag Coalition helped put together this LAMP thing. And, and what LAMP does is it, it supports local food systems by combining the local food program project grant and the farmer's market project grant along with the value-added producer program grant. Um, there's a lot of... of there's a lot of, of vowels and consonants here for me to keep track of. But those two programs really support local food systems. The issue we had is that um, with such a divide between the House and Senate bills, it's taken them a while to come together and, and figure out a compromise. And there's some pretty, you know, rancorous division between uh, parties, especially the House, the the this has all been pushed back they, they were hoping to get it done before the election but then the democrats and the democrats in the house saw that there was a chance that they could potentially pick up seats there was a delay they wanted to do it after the election now the farm bill is back on the table and they're trying to get done with conference but there's still huge divisions it may not get passed until next spring <laughs> when um the new Democrats come in. And if that happens, then you're going to look at probably the, the Senate bill is going to get passed. Um, but right now, everything's up in the air, which means all these programs like Beginning Farm and Rancher Development Program, like I said, Local Food Promotion Program, the Value to Producer Program are all on hold, um, which is pretty impactful for like me because I, I write those grants. And so I, I, you know, I derive quite a bit of income from those things um all I, that stuff is on hold all of it's on hold until it can be reauthorized it did not have permanent baseline funding in the past farm bill and um because because um clay oliver wrote the letter to representative austin scott's office who austin scott is his representative and his district is uh, like kind of wraps around north part of macon does not include macon gets a little bit of like uh, Twiggs County, and it comes all the way down to about Austin, Lowndes County. Um, he, uh, Austin Scott, met with Clay two weeks ago, and Clay called me and asked me to come and, and, and talk to the representative because I'm more familiar with some of the Farm Bill programs we're pulling, pushing for, and just have a better context of what we're talking about. And, and just as kind of, you know, moral support. And it, it seemed, uh, Austin Scott was... Uh, he is he it looks like he's going to be for the grant programs and he didn't get in specifics but he was going to support them he's i had met with him previously and asked him to uh to support the farmers market promotion program actually when i was working with george organics michael and i went down and met with him and he actually spoke on the house floor in support of it um so he he's he likes things that support entrepreneurship and i think that's you know one of those language games that we can always use to figure out how to to, to, to make the sell, right? And said, okay, you know, this is not a handout. It's a, it's a, it's a support program for entrepreneurship. It's a job creation program. And, um, they're so worried about handouts now all of a sudden. Well, I mean, you know, it's, you, you're talking, you've got to get like a good conservative language, you know, so I mean, American agriculture is yeah. based in handouts. Well, let's not, let's not, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I understand that. I understand it, It's, and I, maybe handouts, not the right word, no, I get it. But, I know what you're saying. But it's you know what you try to do is you try to you know I think everything's a language game, so you try to use yeah, totally you know that that vocabulary that's going to make the most sense. Um, and because what you also you want to give him the language 
that then he can sell to the, he can repeat in front of people who are more conservative than he is. Right. So, you know, you need to get, it's not just selling him. It's allowing, enabling and empowering him to be able to bring that same argument to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, um, he and said, I shouldn't say that it's based in handouts. I mean, that's really callous to say that it's, it's a complex system designed to feed millions of people. Yeah, if we could, that would be a, another conversation to fully understand exactly how farm insurance and payments and ARC and PLC work and what commodities mm-hmm. are covered. Um, that's, I mean, that, if anybody, that, that's a, a Byzantine maze to understand it. Um, but, sure, and, and thank God for a lot of that stuff because you can't expect people to, just like with the hurricane, you can't expect that people should lose everything without being able to, have some sort of compensation yeah and i think then right and i think there are definitely things out there i I think agriculture is in a an interesting place because i think it's undergoing some transformation with um maybe a climate within the climate but certainly with the tariffs and i think it's probably a good thing for american agriculture in the long run although it's gonna be really painful for a lot of folks now uh, there are definitely things that we could have a conversation about and agree, you know, we, we could have a whole conversation about U.S. sugar and what, what should be done about the sugar industry and how much power it has. Um, and also uh, how much power it has to control the environment. Um, and, I, you know, real side note here, because I want to finish this up. And but the, we really need to watch the Florida uh, agriculture commissioner race and that's also right now the democrat is leading and it is uh there's a recount or probably going to be a recount but they they have so there are so many lawsuits in florida that it's really hard to keep track of what's going on down there uh especially what's happening in south florida like georgia looks fine compared to florida georgia is just basically going through and making sure all the absentees and and provisional ballots and making sure everything is just counted. And it's, and it can, it it, it makes, at least makes sense on paper. If you want to take a couple steps back, Mm -hmm. Um, Florida is nuts. Florida is, you know, it's the governor is suing the head of elections of, of, of Broward or, you know, it's just like, it's what's happening then there is, is almost impossible to believe. But the right now, the Democrat is ahead and it's big news because she was a lobbyist, and she's probably they, at least in the the article I read in the in the Tallahassee Democrat Gazette that um, she is uh, she is not from an old agricultural family in Florida, which old agriculture is, has been kind of run stuff, and also um, the commissioners have been beholden to Big Sugar because mm-hmm. it has so much money, but Big Sugar has also kind of destroyed the environment around like Okeechobee. Um, and into the Everglades, and it's it's destroyed so much of the environment, but yet it's produced so many top tier NFL skill players. <laughs> that's that's right, that's right. Uh, well, yeah, and, and with uh, the muck bowl from seriously from chasing those freaking rabbits. Yeah, the well, well, and the, the issues with essentially the Everglades, basically, it should be this incredibly, it's incredible like drain and filter for all the water in Florida, and what's you know without a doubt. And they bypassed it and created, you know, kind of a false hydrological system. And it's also led to incredible amounts of runoff. Um, it's, uh, you also add the nitrogen and phosphorus in this in these farming areas. And then so, you know, Florida has been plagued by red tide and even blue tide this year. Like people can't, can't go out in the Gulf because of the red tide. Yeah, that's right. That's in the ocean. But I think yearly Lake Okeechobee is just 
nasty. Yeah, yeah. And so and in the hottest part of the summer, you know. Well, and so they, so this, you know, both actually, everyone's had to run in the environment in Florida this year because of the issues with the red tide. So it's been interesting to see that. And you know, there's there's maybe some good bad things about like how how they're going to tackle it. Are they going to create you know good reservoirs in South Florida that makes sense when it comes to the to the swamp, or they're going to create you know more man-made like bypasses that are going to fail down the road. But the the commissioner of agriculture, the the woman, she's from South Florida, and the most interesting thing she I think if I'm not right has been a meta, a marijuana lobbyist, and so mm. she literally she has run on marijuana and hemp opportunities in the state of Florida, and, and talk about just like changing things dramatically in that state, and that's funny also because in the Georgia governor's race when they had the debate the libertarian when they asked him about how what should you do about rural georgia all he said was hemp and the the journalist laughed about at him afterwards but in florida it's a serious pillar of a of a campaign well that yeah well that i mean the, well you know the um i follow a, a farm on instagram in south carolina called bradford Mm-hmm. Nat, I know Nat, Nat Bradford. I think his guy's yeah, name. I met I don't Nat know him personally. Yeah, I met Nat. He's a he's a, he's a good seems, guy. Seems like a nice guy. He's a Clemson fan. Yeah, I won't, I won't hold that against him. But um, he 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 planted him. I think, and it was he did a post about it. Is like one of a, a handful of South Carolina farms that got picked to uh, plant some sort of hemp. And he was like, you know, like it used to be part of the agriculture. I guess way back when. You have to go back and look at it, but yeah, that's, that's wild, man. Well, it's, it'd be interesting to see what happens, man. If 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 the policies change radically in Florida when it comes to because she also said the role they have, I think medicinal marijuana there, but the way the she I think she ran and said that the permitting was totally off base, like it was unfair, and mm-hmm. you know and it was not equitable the way that the permits were handed out, and so she wants to redo all of that, and then she's totally planning on recreational, I think marijuana happening in that state, and the, and she wants the agriculture to to capitalize off of it. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting. Cause we're, we, we sort of all are guilty. It's like on one hand I'll, I can sit and say, you know, well, this person in Atlanta or this guy in New York city, you know, rings his hand over what blah, you know, this guy with climate change and he's just up on his high horse, but you know, it's like the Florida sugar industry. I mean, I put sugar in my freaking coffee every day. Honey, dude, you got to go for honey. That's what uh, you know what I mean? I mean, it's like, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm just saying like on all this stuff, like we're all. Yeah, yeah, right, right. We're all so entrenched and guilty without even knowing we're guilty. I I would sit and be like, you know, you really got to save the environment in South Florida. But yeah, you know, it's so entrenched in my life. Like it really begs you like all this stuff really begs you to look at yourself as a person and just look at yourself and be honest and. How do I feel about certain things? How do I not feel about certain things? What do I do? And if you really want to be better, I, I think you got to realize the good and the bad. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I sat after I got out of uh, some, some point in time in my mid-20s, I went back to the farm and I worked on the farm and lived in the attic of my great-grandfather's house. And I could see from across the road my great, great, great grandfather's tombstone. And I prided myself because I, I've used uh, very little power, didn't have internet, you know, tried not to use any air conditioning, did not drive anywhere. You know, I did all these things where like I was back in a place that meant something and they had these family connections. And I was, I felt proud of myself for not 
burning fossil fuels carelessly and and uh and i you know i, I thought like i was doing something that was valorous but at the same time i froze my freaking ass off and i was miserable because i never saw anybody i never went anywhere you know i didn't have any kind of social life like on <laughs> on you know yeah. theoretically it was great but at the end of the day it was like wow i have to like be also a consumer to some degree uh of you know to live yeah the consumer live in society yeah the consumer and a polluter yeah. like there's just you no getting around it you got to make it work some somehow we've, we've all got to figure out a way to make all this madness work you know yeah it is it's crazy it's it's crazy times i mean that will be interesting to watch and see what happens i was unaware of that um in florida well all right so i want to finish this up real quick because i, I want to read something to you um so I, I have been pretty busy the last couple of weeks in addition to the hurricane i um I uh, turned in uh, a, a small business innovation research grant for um, Pretoria Fields, which is a brewery in, in Albany. Um, we're okay. trying to put together a project that helps them. It's going to explore the feasibility of producing hops hydroponically in southwest Georgia in a greenhouse environment, okay. um, which is it's kind of really cool. I learned a lot more about hops than I've ever thought I would. Um, they also, I also wrote the evaluated producer grant for them this year that that was funded and they, um, they're using it to, they're growing their own grains for their beers and, wow. um, and they are really great, great, great people, great group, single-handedly revitalizing downtown Albany, beautiful, beautiful facility with wonderful tasting room. Just, I just can't say enough about them. And, uh, if you ever find yourself in Albany, Georgia, they're right across from river aquarium downtown by the Flint river they uh you can't miss them they actually also they support flint river fresh and they have a um and farmer freight and they have a little pop-up farmer's market on sundays um but just a really really cool group of people that i want to give a quick shout out to um, oh yeah rock on and and, and to to find finish it out i wanted uh, on my side of stuff i wanted to read to you real quick so i also um I, i've written a couple of beginning farmer rancher program grants and I, I actually started Georgia Organics directing a beginning farmer rancher program grant. And, and I should have written one that's been funded. I've written one that wasn't funded. And then I've also been a reviewer. Um, these grants are really hard. Any grant that has to go through USDA NEFA um, is a really, really hard grant because NEFA is a, the more kind of science oriented portion of um, the USDA, you don't see them on the state level. They're all up in DC and they fund research. And most of your USDA funded work that happens at universities comes out of NEFA. It's the National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Um, but they have a, have a harder grant process. And on a side note, the, the Secretary of Agriculture, Purdue, uh, announced that he was trying to move NEFA out of DC. He wanted to move the ERS, Economic Research Service, and NEFA out because um, it would just be more cost effective. And there's been some rumor that they may come to Atlanta. Um, it's a lot wow. of people and they need to, need to be by an airport. But you know, the, the thing right now, I think politically in DC is anytime anybody announces any kind of change, people lose their minds. And, and you know, it, it, there's good and bad to it all. But all that being said, so the beginning farmer rancher grants, they're generally three years up to $700,000. They really are a good program in theory to kind of help create that next generation of farmers. And at some other time, I'd like to talk about, we'll talk about who these grants are going to and some of the problems with the awardees. But um, just to touch on it right now, there were two grants that went to the state of Georgia. And one went to the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which I will 
not addressed at this point in time. And the other one went to this group called In Her Shoes. And now I'm going to talk about this. And, and I don't mean um, I, this may be a very good project. Um, it, I don't know anything about this, the project director. I don't know anything about this group. I don't know anything about them. So I am not saying anything negative about the quality of the people or the organization that got this grant. All I'm doing is I'm reading from the description of the award that was pasted on, posted on the USDA website. And I'm reading to you this, Brandon, for the very first time, uh, and I just wanted to get your response. And when I read this, I want to set this up a little bit, that it's actually hard to read this because there are certain words that are merged together. So, for example, this word, counties possess unique, there's three words, counties possess unique. It's actually in this description on the USC website, all one word. And there are a couple of different instances of this. And uh, it's really sloppy. And generally, when they get these descriptions, they just copy it from whatever the applicant has posted. So are you ready? Are you ready? <laughs> I am. Yes, I'm ready. All right. So this is the non-technical summary from the USDA NIFA Chris page. Okay. Quote. <clears throat> And, and what this is, is a description of, of the necessity of why they should get this money. <clears throat> in addition to the disparity traditionally experienced by minority farmers, the women and minorities in South Fulton, Douglas, Carroll, and Paulding counties possess unique characteristics and challenges to accessing resources that are exacerbated by the rural nature and very low population densities of the area. Individuals in these areas experience increased hardship due to farm dependency and limited to no access to necessary resources, such public transportation and broadband services, which makes access to the information, labor, and other resources more difficult. Is that, are you done? Yes. What? They don't have broadband in Fulton County? <laughs> yeah, that's what right. Douglas, yes, Douglas and Fulton. I mean, yes, wow. yes. Char that are exacerbated by Fulton, exacerbated. Douglas, Carroll, and Paulding, exacerbated by the rural nature and very low population densities of the area. Holy moly, dude! I mean, in that, uh, wow. Sounds like you're talking about Reedsville. I, 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 I actually wrote them an email. To, and I said, look, this is what I said, actually. I said, I'm glad to see that the award's been announced, and these are no doubt well-deserved. Um, but I feel like you should address this issue in this description. I said, obviously, there are word choice and grammatical problems here. But South Fulton, Douglas, Carroll, and Paulding are essentially metro Atlanta counties. Downtown Atlanta is located in Fulton. And pointing out their, quote, rural nature and, quote, very low population densities is almost nonsensical, especially in light of issues facing truly really part, rural parts of the state. Oh, like, yeah, just a slap in the face. Slap in the face. I mean, it is like... Dude, I mean, what about where you, you know, if you live in a place where it is, you know, the thing that always struck me about Reedsville was that, you know, um, the broadband could be an issue. Uh, and then the selection of food and, you know, and it's well, known, you know, every that's one thing that everybody talks about when you go to the freaking grocery store in Reedsville, 
it's basically like living in a food desert. And that's true. I think that's another conversation to have is you have one grocery store and the food quality is really poor in there. In the middle of farm country. That's right. You know, and it's like, it, oh man, what a slap in the face to places like that. Because there are truly places, that's amazing. That's amazing that, that, that somebody could get away with saying any of that stuff. I mean, I don't, I don't know much about Carroll County, but Carrollton's got to be pretty big, right? It's doing fine. It's also got West Georgia University. I mean, it's, it's, it's doing good. It, Carroll is, is, a, is a pretty well-to-do county. And, and Paulding County is just uh, rife with uh, development now. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and then South Fulton is like what what down there by Serenby and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, that's like, right, that's right. And it, you know, it's they're not, you're not hurting. South Fulton is more rural than North Fulton, but that's like that's apples. Well, that and, yeah, much. it's not saying anything at all. I mean, South Fulton is the airport, and then oh wow, you, you know, some nice rolling areas around there. But I, I just uh, you know, I, uh, well, there's tons of options for them. I mean. It's exacerbated by maybe because you don't want to, I don't know, you don't want to get off the couch and seek it out? No, I think, look, I think it makes the USDA look stupid when they put that up there. I was just trying to save That's their crazy. save their, their rear ends, the guys that run that program. But also, yeah. um, I look at it and... Because it's not the residents of those counties put saying this. Well, no, no, no. It, what it also shows you some of the flaws in the whole system. Like, I, I'm yeah. not saying there's anything going on, like, like bad by this applicant or anything happened bad behind the scenes but you can also see which you you paint a picture for reviewers who don't know what's going on exactly they have no idea you don't you don't mention where it is yeah but like you know that i hate to say i mean i'm just gonna go that's bullshit that that whole description right there is bullshit and you know for and, sure and if you want to write a different thing if you wait you, ha- you may have a good project um which be fine it's fine go for it but like that right that description is a slap in the face really to everybody in the state of Georgia. I mean, everybody who ever, you know, needed any kind of USDA funds, like, like describe it differently if you're, if, if you really have a good project that people there, but. Well, for sure. I mean, the, the litmus test to see if you have good broadband or not is now, and I'm not talking about like the trendy because there are the litmus test is, do you still have a store within 30 to 40 miles of you that's that you can go rent a dvd or a vhs tape if Mm. if you do then chances are you have areas around you that have spotty broadband because the red box isn't enough people get in you you know every small town has a red box yeah the choices are very limited and i've noticed in my travels that when you get around the places that have the, the bad broadband, you will find it, there's one, <laughs> there's one in Hazelhurst. There's definitely one in McRae. Um, there's one in Brunswick, which is somewhat surprising. It is but, surprising. Um, but it's on that stretch going towards Jessup, you know? Yeah. Um, it does, it does get, get sort of out in the sticks. There was one in Pembroke when we lived in Reedsville. Um, you know, and I say that it's kind of jokey, but I think there's probably something to it that there is sort of a demand still for people that want to rent DVDs. I think that's a good point. You know, I because uh... you can't watch Netflix, right? Well, I, that's, that... that's what I'm getting at. You know, and it's like I'm sure that there's no v, there's no there's no tape rental places in South Fulton. 
I cannot. No way. That, like, this, that, that's ridiculous. We the, should fire off an email to him and ask him. The broadband issues there, to bring that up, is absolutely ridiculous. It is. We, ab- should, we should fire off an email and be like, well, I to, know you got broadband. You don't got any to, to internet, places. We should, maybe we can trick them somehow. I'm like, see, ha, you're on like, the internet right are, now, dummy. What are you talking about, Birdman? Uh, I'll tell you what I'm talking <laughs> about, by God. Well, so Maya, uh, just real quick, um, my my parents, my dad, um, they get um, they still get Netflix DVDs in the mail, and oh, I was nice. like, and they got fine internet. I mean, they're <laughs> nice. in South. Did they Hall. get Columbia House too. I, oh man! Oh my God! Oh, we have to talk about that later. But um, I um, I owed them so much money back in the day. I know, right? I was just like, Mom, I got to just get my mom to write a letter saying, like, no, you know, he, he's a kid. He's not gonna he's not gonna keep taking these CDs. Um, <laughs> he can't keep taking them. <laughs> But they, oh, it was awesome. But I, would, oh, God, you felt so sophisticated, too. Getting it in the mail. Oof. Hell, yeah. Hot shit. That's, uh, that's all my greatest hit CDs came out of that. Got a BMG sure. in Columbia House. A hundred percent. So, no, I'm going to tell you, though, my, so my dad, um, last time, maybe last time I was there, time before last, they were cutting, um, they, they were turning off their, their internet. They called them up and asked them to eliminate their internet, that they just didn't use it. So they still get Netflix DVDs in the mail, but they just don't use internet. Now, uh, I See, like, that's cool. I said, like, you're the last people. I mean, you're the last people in the world I know getting off the internet. <laughs> the last bastion, but it, you know, it is high. I mean, in St. Mary's, we we use this company called TDS. I mean, our internet sucks. Does it? it? It's atrocious. I mean, if you if you're in one, and we live in a small house, we live in like an old like mill house type house, and um, if you're in one side of our tiny house, like like all these all these newfangled uh, organic farmers, they love living in these tiny houses. Yeah. I mean, man, I mean, the, the story of grassroots is we, we've lived in a single wide trailer. That was a tiny house. We've lived in um, a yeah. mill house, which was a tiny house. And in our little mill house, you, if you're on the other side of the house, like when my boys are wanting to watch Netflix in their room, it's a constant, like, thing. And TDS was like, well, yeah, you got to get a magnifier to uh, boost a signal, like a signal booster. It's like, how can this be? Yeah. It's wild, man. So, I mean. I get it. It's expensive too. Yeah. It is. Yeah, I don't have it. Um, I may go back to Columbia House. <laughs> I, I think we should save another conversation, another uh, podcast, just to, to to go nostalgic on um, local VHS rental places. Like, you I would... mean, I'd be willing. I'd be willing to bet in North in North Camden, where my farm is, that you. I don't know that you could find a company that you could get internet with or not. It's out there. Know. Yeah, I was trying to think. I don't. Uh, I'd have to look. I know you don't get cell cell service. You know, real sticking point trying to get my wife to move out there. Well, you don't even get any cell phone service. Like, well, honey, it's not always going to be like that. You know, they won't get it until more people move out there. That's right. You guys can do a tipping point. It's like the frontier. Somebody had to go. You know, may as well be you. Oh, <laughs> you, have to, you have to sell it differently. <laughs> yeah, my way of selling it is. Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a great salesman, but my way of sell, selling it eventually will just be you know I got my strawberries in, I got my Satsumas going, which are just gangbusters, and um, and 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 you know, man, you know it's like mentally I'm like recovered from Irma and the move down here and everything, and I'm I'm by golly going I'm gonna start doing some chicken next year. Are you really? Yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna let them win. I mean, it, it, I was looking at some old pictures. And um, it just hit me that we had really 
we really had something special. And, and it, it was a few factors, you know, Springer Mountain, the pressure from them, um, having to move the whole farm down to Camden, and then uh, Irma and the debacle that was using inland seafood, all that stuff sort of like kind of added up to where I just got really burnt out on doing chicken. Um, and I feel like, you know, time, enough time has passed that it's like a bad breakup and I'm, I'm ready to enter back into the dating world. And uh, I'm pretty excited about it, man. That's good. Yeah. That's good for you, man. Um, what, what, yeah, so, excited. so are you selling Satsumas this, this winter? No, nah, I didn't really. I only left enough blooms. I got a, only a hundred trees, but I picked off all the blooms again this past year, but I left enough to where maybe I could fill up maybe half of a five gallon bucket with Satsumas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I'll do. I'm, I'm going to let this week go by. It's nice and cold at night. You know, you need, they need some, a little bit of cold to get uh, a little bit sweeter. But I ate one the other day, and it was great. My my middle child ate ate one and said that it was better than any any orange out of the grocery store, and that that means something coming from him because if there's two items of food that this kid loves, it's fish of any kind and citrus. Hmm. Um, he loved it, and they're you know they're easy to peel, and um, they've really been. Maybe I've just been lucky. Maybe Camden is just you know the perfect spot, but they've really done well without much like interference from me you know as far as like i've never had to spray i've never sprayed any pesticides on them um never really done much to them outside of you know some fertilizer and and i let my hens range up in there and um so yeah man they're doing pretty good i'm not selling any this year probably next year okay next year and what about and you're getting those is is the whole farm getting certified or just your satsumas um no i think what i'm gonna do and i need to talk to shout out michael wall i mean guy you talk about a guy that's just like he, he really is like a diligent worker and he he really is helpful and he sent me the organic packet and it has his little finger tab notes on it like really start here start here and then now you move here hi and he writes his little notes you know yeah it's, it's really good and um so i, I got to talk to him or to you or somebody that knows better but what i sort of envision doing is because I still have pigs and chickens, and I'm not I'm not going to bother with certifying either. I'm not going to certify any protein organic, right? Yeah, I'm just, I'm just not. Um, but I do. I am. What I do want to do is have my Satsuma Grove certified organic, and then I want to certify like two or three acres of of basically like what is now fallow ground um, that I can plant. And do um, I'm really interested in doing uh, like a you pick strawberry for next year. Um, I'm not really concerned with whether that's certified organic or not. Like that would be sweet, but I don't know how possible that is with strawberries. But I would love to grow some mixed type vegetables out of a certified organic field, you know, and be able to, um, you know, if, if nothing else to be able to have that and is something that I can, you know, you get small, it's small victories doing this type of work, you know, and anytime you can legitimize yourself on something like that and you can show your kids and, or they can grow up and say, Oh yeah, well we had a certified organic farm. You know, I think that's yeah. pretty cool. It sounds cool. And um, I think there is something to like trying to eat produce that isn't 
and you know, this is just me talking, but I, I really do have a problem with, pro, with produce that is laced in glyphosate, you know, and I, 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 it's probably my skeptical nature, but I really, I really do get concerned about that because I do think that, um, it, it, it like the organic stuff has gotten weird, you know, with like different factions of like people and why they think organic and this and that. But, you know, the reality is, is that I just want to be able to produce food that doesn't require, if it requires other work on my end, that's cool. If it doesn't require a bunch of chemicals, Mm -hmm. you know, and I really want to like tend to a piece of land that I'm proud of and that I feel like we're, it, it just kind of falls in line with how I, I try to improve this acreage where I'm at regardless, you know what I mean? And like, so I don't know how feasible all that is, but it's, it's the goal, you know? And, and I, and you said you're going to have, so you've got strawberries in now. Yeah. So you're going to have, are you, you going to have a, you pick next spring? Yeah, yeah, I am. Um, so I put these strawberries in basically I've, I've owned this, um, Ford 3000 tractor for like five years, probably four years. And for a long time, I just owned the tractor. I didn't even have a bush hog. And then I saved up and bought a really, like, the heaviest duty bush hog that bush hog makes. I mean, this joker can, like, grind up stumps. It's awesome. It's like a tank. It's it's a bush hog's bush hog. And um, so I got that. And then I found a rototiller. I was going to rent one. And I called to rent it. And the guy was like, well... I don't know if you'll be able to rent it because we got it up for sale. And I was like, really? How much? It was 450 bucks, man, for a rototiller that's like six foot wide. And it's awesome. It really works well. And so I bought that. And then I got a little hiller attachment for my mm-hmm. tractor. And, um, you know, you're looking at those implements. I've had the bush hog for a long time. But the other implements, and you're like, man, that's this is cool, you know? Yeah, they are. It's cool. I mean, because every farmer's dream is to grow stuff, you know, whatever. And, and I, I was like a horticulture person before I was uh, before I was ever a farmer. I worked in wholesale horticulture. I've always loved plants. I have a friend that used to call me Horty. All <laughs> Horty. Where's all Horty at? And um, but I've always been a plant guy. And uh, so I so I bought 250 strawberry plugs um, and I bought them the sweet charlie and i got candler and i did them in a um like a hill system like and i'm doing them on on like an annual type deal i just wanted to try them out so i put them under drip irrigation um on hills made my kids plant them it was great you know like no get down there no you got to do it no you can't no you got to be gentle with the plant no you got you know and i was really like on them you know to plant them correctly mm-hmm. it was great and uh and they did and they really the the sweet charlies in particular look more they look dynamite they're they're just a really nice color of green and they're putting off new growth and you can tell they've rooted out the candler um it didn't appear to have shipped all that great like it looked pretty pretty just looked sorry upon shipping you know so it's probably not a a good baseline but i'm not real happy with the way that that one has performed but i was talking with a buddy of mine uh who's a chef at the wild and at el coyote in savannah today as a matter of fact he's a real strawberry connoisseur and uh used to grow strawberries commercially and 
we were talking about different varieties and, and he was telling me some, some good ones. Um, so I, yeah, I'm, what I'm, what I'm sort of hoping happens is that it produces well, at least sweet, sweet Charlie. And I can kind of get my feet wet. You know, this is how like farming has always worked for me is that I try something, I get, I take a risk, probably take a risk with the total. You got to accept that it's probably going to be a loss. You're not doing it for the money. Yeah. Right. You're doing it for the experience. And so what I want to do is do it, get my feet wet, see what happens, the ins and outs, what went right, what went wrong, what do I need to change. And then next year, I'm hoping that I can put in a few thousand plugs, you know, and have a, a U pick and then basically turn the U pick into like um, something that we in Camden and Glenn um, and even Brantley and coastal Georgia can be proud of, you know, um, some, somewhere where we can go get fresh strawberries. Mm-hmm. And then also while you're there, um, we do have fresh or we have um, pork that's USDA inspected that's in the freezers uh, retail cuts and then also maybe i could cook up some barbecue you know and serve that up and uh, it'll be great for my kids because i you know anytime i can put my kids to work on a farm to me is like um, i think there's something really spiritual about that and I, i'm not just bullshit when i say that like i really believe that that there's something that comes from that a child exposed to a farm and like some work it really just does something to a to a kid that you don't get i think anywhere else really And, um, so I'm hoping that I can do that. And then with my vegetables, what I'm hoping I can do is, um, I'm going to, I'm going to try to get into the, uh, Camden County farm to school Mm -hmm. stuff, um, just with some limited stuff, you know, whether it was like lettuces or like, you know, who cares, like whatever. And, and really just try to market it and keep doing my restaurants and keep doing my pigs and stuff. But really try to market what I'm doing as uh, a place in a, in a specific area of the world where average people can access this type of food if they're so inclined. And if they're not so inclined, then that's fine. Do you I'll probably run into you at the Waverly Minute Mart and I don't give a shit. <laughs> it doesn't offend me. I don't give a fuck. Do you, do you, uh, so this, this, all right, what is the growing season for strawberries where you are? Well, see, you can do them on the annual system rather than the perennial. So you do them basically the way Florida does and you plant them. Um, I planted mine about, let's see, I planted mine right at the tail end of October, probably three quarters of the way through October. Um, and from everything that I gathered, you know, you'd want to, How are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Sorry, my phone rang. Um, yeah, it's weird. On this podcast, when my phone rings, it cuts me off. But but uh, from everything I gathered, you do them, you basically plant them like that as a plug, you know, or bare root or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you let them go through the winter and then produce in the spring going into, you know, spring. And then you just rip them up and do it again. So you eliminate yeah, so all you... the diseases and stuff. You, you know what I mean? Are, are you... Are you February, March? What's your um, what's your spring there? I'm just trying to um, as far as I'm thinking that you're, they're going to be producing fruit probably February through like April, May. Okay, 
you know, being being a non-expert, I mean, I'll be able to tell you in about five months. But I, that's what are I'm you, anticipating, I guess. And you're you're are you you're doing bare ground? You're not a plastic. Uh, I did them on in hills. Uh huh. And I put I didn't put plastic, but I put weed mat, so it's like okay. permeable. Yeah. Because I was real nervous about the plastic because I was thinking. You know, this is like total layman, you know, just a guy figuring it out. But I was thinking if you do them under plastic, it seems like if you have a problem with your drip, you're not going to know, you know, until it's too late. And like you're noticing some of them withering away and then you're going to have to rip it up and figure it out. And I figured with the permeable stuff, being that the winters aren't that cold and everything, I mean, maybe my thinking's flawed, but I was just thinking, it would probably work fine with the permeable stuff. And, and by the time they are big and vigorous, as long as I can keep in between the rows clean, they're going to be able to sort of suffocate any other weeds that come up. It's like, it's like the organic peanut idea. Yeah, I think so. I, I don't know how, how flawed I am, you know, with that, but we'll just have to see. And it, and it probably be just like every other endeavor I've done where, you know, three years from now, I'm, I'm totally not doing it or I'm, I've tweaked something or cause you'll figure out what works better or what doesn't, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I think, it, I think it could be cool. I think like a U pick and, and getting more into different, different types of citrus type stuff and like a, having a U pick, it just, it, it's just a great reason to get people because grocery store strawberries are one of those items that are really hit or miss. And when they miss, they miss frequently and they miss like big time. Well, you see Florida, North Carolina, and California strawberries in there. And like, why, why is Georgia not selling strawberries? Yeah, in, I don't know. And I know that a lot, of, a lot of times the strawberries are just, they're just not all that great because my daughter loves them. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those items that I think, you know. They're you, tasteless. Yeah, and you get this, you, you get a real, a, a genuinely better product by doing, by doing, doing this. And then you also get people with a, a reason to come to the farm and sort of support the other stuff. There's a, um, and just like not strawberry related, but there's a, um, I may work with a guy down in Southwest Georgia. I spoke to him after the hurricane, but um, he's trying to put together a, a Satsuma juicing facility. And uh, there's some federal money to help him put together some of the equipment. And, yeah, that would and, be cool. Thing, but I think that's the next phase with Satsumas here. It seems like everything's going well, you know. I oh think yeah, the, they are. I, I think it's another conversation to have. Well, we can talk about Satsumas in a, a time just about how interesting what the gamble is for Satsumas in Georgia. Well, yeah, um, and I and and like the reason I'm going to uh, to certify them or at least try to because you know is that I think the um, if you've only got a hundred trees, if you I just, I, it's like everything I do. I'm not really focused on like a huge amount. I'd rather just do a manageable amount and do it really well. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, and market it. It's like, I just want it to be the best that it can be. But I think with the oranges, like that's one of the higher, like the glyphosate levels in oranges, I think are higher than a lot of other foods. Interestingly and, enough, and like, and, and you know. well, we need just real quick to to clarify. So when you talk about like glyphosate, glyphosate, I, I was confused. I think I have to see the word in my head. 
and like levels. Are you talking about that the plants are also picking the residuals up out of the ground, or, or is it actually surface? I don't know. It's something residual. That I, I had read. I could have swore that I had read. Be, I I had read that orange juice itself, because there's now a home test kit for glyphosate. Yeah, glyphosate that you can te- <laughs> that you can test your food and mm-hmm. and your body. And, and I don't think it's very expensive. There's a permaculture guy that's from Waycross. He's moved out to Missouri, but we follow each other on Twitter. And um, he kind of hit me to this. And I've never, I, I, I mean, I've never really been the kind of guy that was really that worried about the Roundup in my food and like glyphosate. Like I, I've always kind of had the attitude of like eating vegetables, no matter what is better than eating no vegetables at all. Yeah, And I never really stopped to think, like, what are the levels, you know, and stuff like this. But I was talking to him about it, and, man, I mean, you know, I just got to thinking about it. And it's like, dang, I mean, you know, I don't – you know, you're getting your information from, like, they, they the government also said that cigarettes weren't bad for a long time. Yeah. You know, and so – and, and I, I just think that I'm naturally skeptical by nature. And then when I read the orange juice thing, it was like – well, hey, you know, I'm not really trying to douse a lot of pesticides, in particular pesticides and, and herbicides out here anyway. It's like I don't yeah. I just don't really like do that to begin with, you know, like I, I don't go through the orchard with Roundup now. Right. You know what I mean? Like I just don't have the need to do it. It's only 100 trees. I can use a lawnmower. And if I'm really worried about weeds, I can throw corn up under one of the trees and let the chickens get it. And they'll scratch all the, all the, um, yeah, that's weeds right. Up. And they do. And that's what I do. And they also add manure and it's improved the soil in the past couple of years since I've had them there. The soil's improved, uh, pretty dramatically. Gone from like a real clay sort of hard pan. Um, you, you'd have to know the property, but it's not the soil that I actually had the trees in is some of this soil was brought in because they were going to, put a neighborhood on this track of land before I way back like 10 years ago and they had brought some dirt in so this dirt is not native like Camden dirt it's like dirt that they had brought in um and it was like just really dense clay none of which I knew when I planted them because I planted them when it was all very raw Mm -hmm. Um, but if you go 20 feet to either side you'll see that it's black sand you know which I think would probably be even better right for producing this type of stuff but um so anyways i mean it's like if you're already not i don't i'm not spraying my fence rows with uh roundup and shit like that like I, normally i don't really spray pesticides on really anything and i just kind of let things do you know or if i can't take care of it i guess i would i wouldn't be opposed to it but anyways long story short it just gets you thinking well if you're already not doing this and you're already care about the soil and you're trying to improve it and stuff like why not take it one step further and see if you could make more money on it yeah no no i think so i think i I think that makes a lot like complete sense and and you know with glyphosate you know i've I've talked to a usda weed scientist carol johnson brought him up in the last uh, podcast but that you know he talks about you know it's the safest chemical you can ever imagine however we don't have epi- epidemiological studies that are long enough to actually understand what the effects are so yeah and and, I, and the other part you know we always look at science well you know what all that science is is that it's 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 the best understanding of tools we have right now so just the same way oh yeah cigarettes are fine like you know like 
when's the last time we said something as a as a, a scientific statement as a as a society yeah. that that stuck right that's right i mean, I mean yes yeah, cigarettes were fine until that age group got old enough to start getting cancer yeah and then it was like oh shit and see i'm already hopelessly addicted to nicotine and have been for forever and currently it's dip and i hope i never go back to smoking cigarettes but i i am 41 and i do like it sounds stupid but you know i try to really pay attention to what i eat my dad died yeah. my dad died of pancreatic cancer when he was 57 and and he was a Oof. healthy guy yeah he exercised didn't smoke didn't really drink if there was one thing that he liked to eat it was like chips and like shit like that microwave popcorn chips he, but he was like a, a healthy coach you know he's physically fit and uh, yeah and it's always in the back of your mind of like was it something he was eating was it some you know and it's like now granted you dip you know but everybody whatever you know i'm stressed if i didn't dip i'd i'd probably kill somebody how, how long brandon after he was diagnosed did oh he, did dude that's like three months Two yeah, pink, he got yeah, diagnosed pink. in like Feb in like uh, December, like right yeah. before Christmas. Like he coached his last football game, and then had his le- one of his legs swelled up really bad, and he thought it was an injury from mountain biking. And then went to the doc, went to DeKalb General in, in Decatur, and it was blood clots like all in his leg. And then mm-hmm. came home, and then kept brushing it off like it's nothing. And then he like went up to take a shower, mm. and one of the clots like dislodged, and um, and he fell out like in the shower. And then we found him, and we had to, you know, ambulance came, and then he went he went to the hospital in Gwinnett, and probably stayed for a week. And then mm-hmm. then they're trying to diagnose it, but it's not officially diagnosed. But from that moment, which was probably like first part of December, he was dead. He died February seventeenth. Yeah, and pancreatic cancer of a, of a very excruciating. You starve to death. It's yeah. It's uh, it. So I mean, it is it is kind of that type of thing that's always in the back of my mind. I think even why I choose to do what I do, be self employed. You know, why why take all the risk and like not have insurance and sometimes be you know stretched so thin with money. It's like you know, but you know, it's like you got to be happy. Right? You got to like, right. you know, because it's like it's always in your mind. Like, well, you could be dead by the time you're 57. Yeah. Wow. You got to like, you got to commit and be happy. And like, I do try to, I do try to eat and, and especially for my kids, you know, try to try. I mean, the older I get, the more I realize that like, that no matter how you paint it, if you're spraying poison on your food, that's fine. But don't act like you can't do it different ways on a really small level. That's right. That's right. And, you know, and if you choose to not, you know, you know what I mean? Like it's just a food choice. That's all. It's just, it's just saying, look, we have a choice. I'm choosing to grow this without this. Not because I think I'm better than you just because I'd rather not eat that right here, right at this moment in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I can make that other decision. I can make a decision not to. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I eat enough of it. I eat, I eat shit all the time. I'm notorious for stopping at the gas station. You can ask my kids, getting something to eat, you know, but I can choose to try to be more natural too. You you know what I mean? Like, I think there's a real movement of people that aren't real frou-frou organic, but they are interested in like harvesting their own meat via hunting and fishing. And they're not like your typical, they're not a political group you could easily paint. 
I think they come from all backgrounds and they're not like hippies or anything like that. But I, I think they are interested in like either growing or shooting or buying foods that they have more of a connection with. And I think it's just like what I said, being spiritual. I think it is, there's a spirituality to that. It sounds really hippie, but it's not, trust me. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, completely on board. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I get uncomfortable talking about it because uh, I started to realize that I didn't, I started to be self-conscious about talking about the spirituality or like the connectedness to, the, <laughs> yeah. to, to creation, start, you know? Next thing you know, you're buying a tiny house and like. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. Oh, did you, uh, did you, oh my gosh. Um, did did you see the um the the story about the hemp and the marijuana and how it might change the 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 energies in the world whether or not you smoke it or not but just how the plant had the opportunity to change no the, but that's okay you have to check that out oh, um, yeah. but you know i i think uh we don't need to wrap this up here brandon but i i think that also you hit right just in terms of like the economics of the small business is that you know when we talk about our small farms we talk about organic what and what you do and actually what i do too uh, we talk about it, you know, it's, it's vertical versus horizontal or it's, it's artisan versus kind of mass market, right? Is that That's right. You're trying to do something on a small scale that appeals to a few number of people, but also you need to add value to it because you need to make more money off of each individual unit. That's right. And, and so organic does that. That's right. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and just, and so for example, if someone, a giant strawberry farm in Florida, they're not going to be organic, but they're not trying to make that much money off that unit. And they also, they're also trying to this is this is just looking at it as, as objectively from an economic standpoint as possible, not talking about the spiritual or the mm-hmm. you know the, the, the potential health um, conversations is, you know so the, and they're also trying to they're also trying to make because they're making less money per unit they have to, to have less production costs per uh, unit and and the highest the highest cost for any farmer is generally going to be labor right and, and so what you do then is you spray a chemical that is going to have some kind of you know efficacy that's that's greater than a, or just equal to a person who can use their hands then that that means that you just spread spread the chemical on, a, on a that's right not having to clock impossible. in not having to right. get it insurance you're not yeah think about all that think about all this all the all the soft costs around labor for sure um and, and i um i i always think about this and i and i want to you know we, another conversation i always say well down the road but there's a there's a podcast i listen to sometimes called masters of scale yeah. And, and it's about uh, it's about Silicon Valley, you know, entrepreneurs slash disruptors um, about, you know, how they the, how they scale their company. And it's really kind of it's interesting from like a, a management standpoint and listening to these folks kind of especially as they're small kind of battle through some uh, the, the, the growth trying to make these right decisions about their employees, about what their company is. Um, but it also, in a way, it, it seems like I'm listening to aliens because like, why I, I don't have any desire. 